I'll be reading from 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. Would you like to turn there with me? 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Sunday, in which a lot of ministers encourage folks across the country to pray for persecuted Christians around the world. You know, usually when we think about persecution, we think about something that happened 2,000 years ago, or 1,900 years ago, or 1,700 years ago. But we've been reminded of the reality in recent months and years that Christians being persecuted for their faith is very much a present reality. As we think about events that we've read about, whether it's an attack at a university in a foreign country, or whether it was seeing a Christian beheaded or a lineup of Christians from Egypt who were burned for their faith, we are reminded that there are people, maybe even at this very moment, who are giving up their lives for Jesus. There has been a movement sweeping across the U.S. of wearing orange ribbons and wearing orange clothing and wearing even orange jumpsuits. And they weren't wearing all of that orange because they're ball fans. They're wearing orange because they're fans of people who have faith not to a game or a school, but a Savior. Who are dying wearing orange jumpsuits. I don't know, and I hope I never know, what it's like to be on the verge of dying for my faith. And I cannot but wonder what would go through a person's mind when they know they're about to die for Jesus. But I cannot but believe that maybe down through the centuries that there might have been some people who went to meet their Savior with the words especially of the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 on their hearts and on their minds. I appreciate very much Brother Rogers allowing me and asking me to come and be with you today, the elders commissioning him to do so. I'm grateful to be back with you. I'm looking forward to getting to visit with Dustin and some of them this evening. I got to see Nicole for just a second, but I didn't get a full-fledged hug, so I hope she's, she's saving me one. Uh, my girls got one, so I'm jealous of them. I appreciate very much those who have led us in worship today, and I appreciate John's Scripture reading. I appreciate Bradley leading us in singing. Um, I had the privilege of having Bradley in class uh, right when I was beginning and he was ending. Um, and I think it was my first seminar in youth ministry class that we had together. I believe you were a graphic design major, best I remember, when we were there. But I appreciate very much his love of truth. I enjoyed him as a student. I enjoyed him this morning as a song leader. And I appreciate, especially appreciated that first song. 
And I want you to think about this morning whether or not we really believe He lives. Do we believe He lives? Because if we believe He lives, then we are ready to die. I want you to pose one simple concept and one simple question I want you to think about. Either we believe there's an empty tomb or we have an empty faith. Do we believe there's an empty tomb? If not, we have an empty faith. just want to hit a few of the highlights of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As we look at the foundation of our faith, the correction of some misunderstandings they had about uh, the second coming and the resurrection of Jesus and the transformation that can be all of ours, that this broken, fallen body can be made new. John read for us a few moments ago the first four verses, so I won't reread them. But as we think about the foundation of our faith, I want us to notice what Paul focused on as the core of what he preached. Not the sum total of what he preached, but the core of what he preached. He says he preached to them a message that was literally, in the present tense, saving them, by which you are being saved. And as you go through Scripture, sometimes our salvation is spoken of in past tense, in present tense, and in future tense. It will refer to that moment in which we are saved in the past in places like Ephesians, or in places like Romans, it will say we are now nearer our salvation than when we first believed. And so there is a sense in which there was a moment in my past I entered into a saved relationship with God, but there is also the reality that the full enjoyment of that salvation lies yet in the future and that in between we are a people in process living the now and the not yet. That we enjoy salvation now but we do not yet enjoy all that it will be. And so Paul says, I preached a message that is saving you. And we're reminded also as we think about salvation, we think about that message, we're reminded that Paul tells us somebody's got to hear the message to be saved by it. And so for that to happen, someone has to preach it. So he talks about, and there's an interesting change in the tenses in their language. And I know it's probably not something that we normally do sit around and thinking about you know, what words did they use in Paul's day and how did they use it, but it can be helpful to us. And you've got some really beautiful things going on here. He refers to a couple of key events in the past in their language. Those two events are the preaching of the good news and the receiving of the good news. There was a time when he had preached the message to them so that they could hear it. I'm reminded of Romans 10, 14. How can they call on one in whom they have not believed? How can they believe unless there is a preacher? And so Paul went forth. I want you to think about the same thing in our community. What if no one goes? What if we don't go? If we don't go, they may not hear and will not be able to believe. But for these folks at Corinth, they had at some point in their past received that message. They had accepted into their hearts and their lives based on faith in Jesus. They had been baptized, immersed in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And we are reminded that what is happening at our baptism is the message of Christ and the Christ Himself becomes a part of us. We receive that message. It, we internalize that message. It becomes a part of our lives from here onward. So he says they had heard it because he had preached it. They had received it. But he then 
has a word. It's perfect tense in their language. He says they stand in it. It's a neat little tense. It refers to something in the past that is still impacting the present. He said, you took a stand on Jesus. You took a stand on this message. It became the foundation of your life. But he says it should still be and it still is the foundation of your life. You stood in it and you're still standing in it. And then he says, not only must we hear it when it's preached, not only do we receive it and stand in it, but he says, I need to hold on to it till my very last breath. In other words, Coming into a saved relationship is not just a one moment in time that happened in the past. See, sometimes we view baptism as a finish line. The reality is it's a starting line. It is the beginning with my life as a new foundation. And I live differently. I don't just do something differently that day. I live differently from that day forward. And so Paul says, this message is saving you, present tense, if... And he uses another present tense word, you are holding on to it. And the book of Corinthians is a book dealing with a lot of threats to the church at Corinth. They were dealing with all kinds of problems from division to confusion to wrong people taking the lead in worship, misunderstandings about the Lord's Supper and wrong practices about the Lord's Supper, and also misunderstandings about the Second Coming. They were real legitimate tests to their faith. And so he said, I don't want you to quit. I want you to hold on so that the ultimate reality of your, of your salvation can be yours. And as he talked about the message that he preached, he says it was a message that focused on three primary things. Paul didn't believe that the sum total of everything he taught was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But he did believe it was the heart and soul. He did believe the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus was the foundation of all He taught in all the churches. A message He said He delivered of first importance. That word, uh, first of all, is the literal phrase there. It can mean first in time. It's the first thing He talked to them about. Or it can mean first in priority. It was the most important thing I talked to you about. Either way, you end up at the same place. Because He would have preached it first of all because He felt it was first and most important. He says, here's what I delivered you. Here's what matters. Here's what was the foundation of everything you hold on. That Jesus Christ died for our sins and that Jesus Christ was buried and that He was resurrected on the third day. And that is the heart of what we believe. When I'm doing personal Bible studies with people, I marry 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 with Romans chapter 6 and verse 3 and 4. That at the cross, through the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus, God extended salvation to us. At our baptism, when we in a one-act play reenact the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we are extending our spiritual hand to take the gift that God extended to us at the cross. It is the foundation of all we are and all we believe. And Paul said all of this happened according to the Scriptures. It may have looked like on that cross that the Romans were in charge. It may have looked like the Jewish leaders were in charge. But this was God's plan. This was God's work. And is the means in accordance with Scriptures, God foretold it by which God saves us. And what I want you to think about is, yes, Jesus had to die on that cross. But it was not enough. 
You see, on the cross, Jesus paid the price for my sins. But it was when He walked out of the tomb that He conquered the last enemy, which is death. The dying on the cross was not enough. I would still, according to what Paul says in this chapter, we would still be without hope if Jesus doesn't walk out of that tomb. But He did. The tomb was empty. He did appear. Acts chapter 1 verse 3 said, He presented Himself alive by many convincing proofs. In other words, after He came from that tomb, He spent 40 days proving He was alive specifically to those apostles. Why? Because they were going to be called, in verses 8 and 9, to be witnesses. If you're a witness, that witness, that means you saw something, you heard something, you experienced something. They were to be witnesses of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The apostles couldn't witness to what they didn't witness. They had to be convinced absolutely that Jesus was resurrected. So by convincing proofs, He proved to those men that He was alive. And I took the list of resurrection appearances in 1 Corinthians 15 and I married them with some of the other appearances found throughout Scripture. And I just want you to take a moment and look through the list on the screen. Some of them are mentioned in multiple locations. I want us to understand this wasn't done in a closet. It wasn't something seen by just one or two people. Hundreds, literally hundreds at a time saw the resurrected Lord. Countless people who saw Him put on that cross also saw Him after He walked out of that tomb. And I want you to notice one in particular. I want you to notice the listing of James. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7. There are three prominent men by the name of James in the Bible. You have James, the brother of John. I don't believe that's the one that's being talked about here because he's been executed many years before this book was written as is recorded in Acts chapter 12. And I don't know particularly why he would take time to highlight the appearance to James who was no longer an active participant and leader in the early church. He's already mentioned that he appeared to the apostles, so he would have been included in that group. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. The other prominent James was the one called James the Less, one of the apostles, because you had two guys named James. So just like in our classes, when you have two guys with the same name, you have to have some way to differentiate. So they had James and they had James the Less. It probably means James the the younger. Okay, so he had older James and younger James. Well, he never was prominent. We really basically run into him when we're looking at lists somewhere in the New Testament. So he wasn't a, a, a key player or key leader in the early church. So I find myself saying, why would he be singled out? Why would he be mentioned by himself? And I, it doesn't make sense to me. You'll have to decide for yourself whether you agree or not. But there is a third James that is very prominent in the New Testament. It's mentioned by Paul in Galatians as one of the pillars of the church. It's in Acts chapter 15 that he plays a key role in helping the, the congregations at Antioch and Jerusalem work out a problem over this issue of circumcision. And that is James the brother of Jesus. And according to John chapter 7 and verse 5, the brothers of Jesus did not believe that He was the Messiah during His earthly ministry. 
Yet, when we get to Acts chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, and we look at the list of followers who were gathered in Jerusalem waiting for the promise of the Father, we're going to find that those brothers with their mother are there with the apostles. So how do you have brothers who go from John 7, 5, not believing Jesus in the Messiah, to Acts chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, they are trusting in the Messiah, gathered with His people, literally at threat of their own lives, waiting for the fulfillment of the promise made by Jesus. What happened in between? I believe 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7 gives me the answer. That Jesus personally appeared to His younger brother James. And it changed James forever. You see, that's what happens when you come to believe that that tomb was empty. The point he's making is we can have confidence in our salvation because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Having said that's the foundation of their faith, he's then going to correct a problem because there was a threat. There was a shot across the bow of the ship, if you will. There were those who were claiming that there is no resurrection. We know that existed in the first century. We know the Sadducees, for example, did not believe in the afterlife. And that's why they, they were a very corrupt group of leaders. Because if you don't believe there's anything next, what do you do? You just try to get all you can out of this life. So that's what they did. And they would buy the priesthood. They were corrupt, etc. Why? Because they didn't believe there was anything beyond this life, so get all you can now. We know in places like Acts chapter 17 that many of those from a Greek culture did not believe in the resurrection. In fact, the text there says that they listened to the preaching of Paul until he started talking about the resurrection and then they turned off the TV. Why? Because they didn't believe in a bodily resurrection. Yes, they believed that your spirit lived on after death, but they did not believe in a physical resurrection of a physical body. What I'm saying is, we shouldn't then be surprised that there were some connected to the church who were saying that there wasn't a resurrection. And so largely what he's doing in the middle portion of this chapter is he's trying to correct that understanding. And he says in essence, if there is no resurrection, then Jesus is not resurrected. If He's not resurrected, then Paul says we're false witnesses. What I declare to you is a lie then everything we believe is in vain. We're still in our dead in our sins. Those who have died have perished. And he says in verse 19, then we're among the most miserable people on the face of the earth. Why, Paul? He's not because, saying that because the Christian life is not a good life. But you've got to remember, a lot of these people in the first century, they were ostracized. They lost their homes and property. They weren't allowed to shop at the local markets. There were even periods in history where some of them died for their faith. And Paul is basically saying, why in the world will we do that if there is nothing next? If there is no resurrection. But there is. Why? Because of Jesus. He says Jesus Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. Now I don't know about you, but I'm excited that spring is here. Anybody ready for spring? Anybody sick of snow and ice? Okay, this is a great spot for an amen. Okay? But I am excited about spring coming and I love seeing all the trees and the flowers blossoming and I can think about I, I start getting excited because I was mowing my yard yesterday 
and I saw evidence that blackberries are coming. Now, we didn't buy the property we have for the blackberries, but it didn't hurt. Okay? And so yesterday I'm going by, and there you, you begin to see the first evidence that we're going to have blackberries. And I'm already, I'll be honest with you, I'll confess it, I'm already thinking about blackberry cobbler bread. I want you to think about it. I remember the place we lived at when we were in Columbia, Tennessee, had an apple tree out back, and when we saw those first blossoms, or when you saw that first apple beginning to form, you know what I assumed? I assumed more was coming. I assumed there would be more apples, that there would be more blossoms, there would be apple pies, and just my favorite thing to do was when I was riding by my lawnmower was just to pluck one off and eat it as I went. Here's my point. He says Jesus is that first blossom. Jesus is that first apple. And He is evidence that more is coming and that we can know our resurrection is coming. There will be resurrections to follow because of the first fruits of His resurrection. It says when He comes back, then will come the end. He'll turn the kingdom back over to the Father because all enemies will be put at His feet. And he says the last enemy that will be destroyed is going to be death. And Revelation chapter 20 and verse 14 gives us this beautiful picture of death and Hades thrown into the lake of fire. It is a reminder that because of the resurrection of Jesus, that enemy, our true enemy, physical and eternal death can be taken away from us because Jesus was resurrected. And so when that last enemy is laid at His feet, He'll turn the throne back over to the Father. There are those who believe that when Jesus comes back, He's going to start reigning for a thousand years. 1 Corinthians 15 teaches that when He comes back, He's not going to start reigning. He's going to actually end a reign because He will have defeated all of His enemies and all of ours. All reasons with them. And he says, if there is no resurrection, then why would someone be baptized for someone who is dead? I think here he's talking about people who were motivated to be baptized because they wanted to see a Christian friend again or a family member again who's died and gone onward. And so they were baptized into Christ so that they could be saved, so that they could see them again. He goes on to say, then, and why would I suffer for the cause of Christ? Many Christians were, were fed to the animals in the great arenas across the empire, and it kind of became uh, illustrative, an example of the suffering that all of us do. And Paul specifically mentions the suffering he went through at Ephesus, and he said, why would I do that if there is no resurrection? So what he's saying is, is don't believe these evil companions. Most of us have probably looked at verse 33 many times in our lives and we never thought about the context in which it was in. When he said that, he was talking about a problem of false teachers who said there's no resurrection. And what he's saying is don't hang out with those people. Don't listen to those people. Be sober-minded and stop sinning. Stop believing that there is no resurrection. And don't listen to those who say there is no resurrection. Why? Because it's the foundation of our faith and it's the foundation of our hope. But most of all, he then talks about the transformation. It seems that some, when they heard him say, well, there's going to be a resurrection because Jesus has been resurrected, that maybe tongue-in-cheek they said, okay, then tell me what, what are we going to look like? There are always those who want to attack any position by coming up with some elaborative question. Well, if that's true, then what about this? Or what about that? Or what about this unique situation? 
And so they were saying, okay, if we're going to have resurrected bodies, what's it going to look like? What kind of body are we going to have to be able to live in heaven? Is it going to be a body like this? Surely you don't think a body like this can be in heaven. And basically what Paul says is, God is really good at making all kinds of bodies. He said he's got bodies of fish and birds. He's got bodies in the sky, whether it's the sun, the moon, and the stars. He's got bodies on earth. God can make all kinds of bodies. And so if He can make fish, and if He can make fowl, if He can make animals and human beings and stars, and each of them be different, each of them be unique, and each of them have their own glory, then He can make a body that is fit for the eternal realm. The reality is, is that He is, is able to make a body that can live forever. He says we have a natural body, and that body will be raised to become a spiritual body. A body that is no longer perishable. A body that no longer lives in dishonor. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of excited that I get an upgrade. Anybody here besides me kind of excited about an upgrade? You see, resurrection means there's going to be a literal resurrection of my body. But my body cannot inhabit a spiritual realm. And when he describes it as a spiritual body, he's not talking about what it's made of. He's talking about where it's going to be, what it's made for. He's contrasting an earthly, natural body with a heavenly, spiritual body. But it's still a body. And so this body is going to be resurrected and this body is going to go through a change. This body is going to go through a transformation so that it is going to be fit to live in the dwelling place of God where nothing fallen and broken, where nothing impure and unholy can be according to Revelation 21. That we're going to have this body 2.0 beautified by the grace and power and glory of God. We will be transformed. Notice what he says as he talks about that transformation. He says that this mortal must put on immortality because flesh and blood cannot inherit there, though this physical fleshly body will be raised. It cannot inhabit that special realm. So some change is going to have to take place. The reason I put 1 John 3, 2 on the screen is I don't know exactly what that body's going to look like. My Bible didn't come with pictures. And so I don't know what it's going to look like, but I'm okay with that because 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2 says we don't know what we will be like, but we know we'll be like Him. I don't know about you, but I'm okay with that. I've spent most of my life wishing I could be like Jesus. And it is quite comforting to me to think that someday I will be. And he says we go through that transformation so we have a body that's prepared for the next life. And then death will be swallowed up in victory. We will have the victory because of that transformed body. And he says death will have lost its sting. Have you ever been stung before? you ever been bitten before? One of our elders at the church I preached at in Mississippi was bitten by 
a copperhead. If you, he, he still has fingers that are still swollen from reaching over a, a log one day and getting bitten on a hand by a copperhead. When I made a visit to India about ten years ago, I held a cobra. Yes, I held about a three-foot cobra. And you know why I held that cobra? Because they took the fangs out. Okay? He told me they were out. But just in case I wasn't understanding his accent, I asked repeatedly and made him show me that there were no fangs before I would hold that snake. You know why that matters today? Because when Jesus came forth from that grave and when He come back someday at His parousia, His great coming, a word that they use for the visitation of royalty, when His royal visit happens, my body will be resurrected and my body will be changed and the fangs will be taken out of death and He can never, ever, ever hurt me or my family again. He can never make somebody I love sick again. He can never take the life of somebody I care about again. You know why we have hope? Do you know why somebody in an orange jumpsuit can face death? Because death doesn't have a sting anymore. But once I get beyond the borders of this life, because Jesus was raised, there is no more sting. And we have hope. Twenty years ago, about three minutes after you began Bible class this morning, there was an explosion at the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. That's back in the news because it's the anniversary and because they just completed a $10 million renovation of the memorial and museum that's there. I spoke in Oklahoma a couple of years ago and I took some time off one afternoon to go visit the museum and memorial to the events of April 19, 1995. And that moment when that explosion at 9.03 in the morning took the lives of 168 people and injured 700 more. We do not know what will happen in the next 60 seconds. But we do know what will happen when our Savior comes back. And because I know what will happen when He comes back, based on what I know that happened 2,000 years ago, I can deal with all the unknowns of everyday life. I can deal with the struggles and the problems and the uncertainties and the doubt. And all of us have it. Even as a congregation, you're going through a period of transition. And you don't know exactly how things are going to play out. And family members, you've got loved ones who are sick. Maybe you've just lost a loved one. You've got somebody on cancer treatments. I can deal with all of that. I can deal with all the 903s in the morning. Because I know that on a Sunday morning, 2,000 years ago, my Savior came out of that tomb. And because of that, my faith has a foundation. And my Savior corrected any who said otherwise. And He said, someday, because that is the foundation of my faith, I can be transformed. And that makes all the difference. So what? What does it mean to us? First of all, I think He challenges us to be careful who we listen to. 
Because they were losing the hope and joy and confidence in their faith because they were listening to naysayers who create doubt. Don't you dare do it. 1 John 5.13, John says, I write these things to those of you who believe that you what? Might think there's a possibility that you can throw a dart in the dark and it might hit somewhere where you're saved? No. He says, I write these things to you who believe that you may know that you have eternal life. Be careful who you listen to. Realize that we can have confidence in our salvation. That hundreds of people who were still alive when people like Luke and people like Paul wrote down about these resurrection appearances. Those people were still alive. You could still go to their home. You could interview them. You can verify what they saw. And because of what they saw, I can believe and I can have confidence in my salvation. But hopefully my confidence lies not in me, not in my baptism, not in anything I do, not even in my holding on to my faith. What my confidence is placed in is not a what, but a who. It's Jesus Christ. I want you to realize that that tomb was empty. And all of us have got to decide whether we believe it. Either I believe there was an empty tomb or I have an empty faith. And when people down through the centuries came to the belief that the tomb was empty, they were willing to face any problem, any struggle. Those apostles stayed in Jerusalem waiting for the promise even though there was a threat that they could be the next ones put on a cross. Why? Because they believed the tomb was empty. There are people today willing to die for their faith because they believe the tomb is empty. Here's my question. Do I believe enough that the tomb is empty that I'm willing to walk down an aisle? You see, a lot of us in this room would say, hey, I'd give up my life for Jesus. I would die. I would let them behead me. I would let them burn me. My question is, not what you would do at one moment in time in the end, but what will we do at one moment in time right now? Will I walk down this aisle and express my faith in repentance, confession, and baptism? Will I take the time to come back tonight? Will I be here when the saints gather to study on Wednesday night? Will I go to the hospital and visit somebody who's a fellow brother or sister in Christ that's hurting? Will I go to a next door neighbor tomorrow morning and tell them about my faith? Will I invite them the next time we have a gathering of God's people? Will I stop saying all those curse words that I've been saying? Will I stop doing the things that I've been doing on Saturday night and then getting up on Sunday morning wanting to bring unholy hands before the throne of God? Either it's an empty tomb or we have an empty faith. And maybe if we're living out an empty faith, it's because we no longer believe. It's an empty tomb. So if you believe that He walked out of that tomb, then maybe it's time that I walked out of my fake Christianity and started living like I believe He lives. If we can help you with that, won't you come as we stand and sing?